You're listening to Talk Daredevil, the official podcast of the Save Daredevil campaign. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Talk Daredevil. Uh, this is going to be our final episode talking about the um, the Daredevil show itself, uh, including last week's episode um, about Defenders. And of course, we're talking about Daredevil season three. And uh, my name is Christine, and joining me today are... Hi, I'm Christina. Happy to talk about the best season in television history. Fight me on that. <laughs> <laughs> And hi, I'm Sam. I'm happy to be back. Great to have you guys here. And this is actually going to be our first time recording together in this particular trio of people. So that's going to be fun. And of course, we uh, do want to talk about our favorite moments from this season. But we also decided that there's so much greatness in just like the entire season as a whole that we uh, wanted to talk a little bit about sort of our feelings on the broader strokes Yeah, so when we first started talking about doing these podcasts about the seasons, I started thinking about my favorite moments from season one, season two, and The Defenders, and it was very easy for me to come up with those favorites. Season three gave me a hard time, and the reason it did is because season three is so seamless. It is a continuous narrative. So even though I did come up with some favorite moments, a lot of those moments are favorites because they connect back to something that happened previously or because they connect to something that happens afterwards. It's almost cinematic. It's almost like we're watching a 13-hour movie. And it's, in my opinion, why this is the best of the seasons. Yeah, I, was, I also had a hard time coming up with favorite moments that I guess the ones I picked were kind of weird. I'm not sure they're favorites as much as just things I kind of wanted to highlight. But yeah, the one thing I I loved about the season was just how seamless it was. And it it was kind of interesting because I, even though I watched it all the way through a few times, um, right after it came out, I uh, only recently did I, like earlier today, did I uh, rewatch it like all the way through since the cancellation. So it was kind of interesting to come at it with, with sort of fresh eyes again. And it's such a great whole, like the editing is great. You have like each scene just builds on the previous one. The pacing is excellent. And I found that, I mean, it's often the case with a lot of TV shows that they uh, do great while they're like building up to to something, but then kind of lose it at the end a little bit. And this doesn't happen here. I mean, it's just such a, it, the ending is excellent too. And I felt that the season kept getting better and better and has that nice, perfect crescendo at the end. So yeah, perfect hole that's hard to pick favorite moments from, but uh, we're going to try to do just that in this episode. What did you think, Sam? I think I have said before that season three is my favorite of all season. And I love season one a lot. And there's plenty for me to enjoy in season two even. But for me, season three grabbed everything that came before and built onto it. And it just took so many of the issues that I had with the previous seasons, like whatever nitpick and stuff, and just fixed it because it was really like a tribute to season one and season two. And they were very careful just to connect all the dots, like with Karen's past and like scenes that we were missing before and everything. So for that reason, season three is just my favorite. It just completes the series in a way that I didn't know we needed until we got season three. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's interesting that you mentioned how it kind of fixed the previous seasons for you. Um, I mean, I've actually I've described it that way myself before. And I really enjoy season one. Uh, obviously, I mostly enjoy season two. It's got some of my favorite scenes in it, actually. But it it was also kind of emotionally difficult for me to watch at times. And it was kind of heartbreaking the way Matt dealt with a lot of stuff that happened that season and the way I mean, the entire like trio kind of falls apart. And there's a lot of hurt feelings and everything. And, and a lot, of, it was just a lot to deal with. Um, and season three addresses all of that. I mean, the first time I watched it, I was kind of annoyed by how long it took for Matt to like dig himself out of that hole he was in. But in retrospect, it kind of it makes sense. And all of those little baby steps are there for a reason. And um, I think it came together super well. I've watched the entire, I call it the Murdoch saga, you know, season one, season two, Defenders and season three. I watched them all separately. And then I've watched them all 10 times each. The last time I did it, I watched the entire thing in order. Season one, season two, the Defenders and season three. And it works so much better that way. I also had some problems with season two. I loved a lot of it. But there were parts that really kind of left me feeling uh, kind of, it was jarring, I guess. There were things that were jarring to me. But when you watch it this way, it works so much better. I think you'll hear people talk about this sometimes when they talk about books or movies. They talk about the second book syndrome or the second movie syndrome, where the second part of a trilogy, sometimes it, it seems really strange on its own. But when you watch it, in the context of the rest, it works. And I really felt that way about this. In a way, watching Matt going through this heartbreak and these horrible decisions that he makes in season two, it's more interesting to watch and you can kind of calmly watch it and enjoy all these great moments when you know it's going to be okay at the end of season three. You're not stressed so much about what he's doing. You can kind of look at it a little bit more calmly um, so if you've never done that, I do recommend you do it. Watch the entire thing in order. Well put, Christina. And I think that's how I, that sounds like an excellent recommendation for the fandom. But uh, with those sort of generalities out of the way, how about we look at the um, sort of the themes and scenes and moments and things that we wanted to touch on specifically from season three. And I know that you, Sam, have one thing from the very first episode, Resurrection, that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so my first pick for scenes that I really wanted to talk about is the uh, Matt Curran scene at Matt's apartment, the first episode. And there's so much to talk about in this scene. There's so much to unwrap here because you have the fact that this is coming directly from season two. Uh, and we have a flashback like with the season two ending and it was such a big thing it's the finale for the season two but we didn't really see Toshin Defenders which makes sense because it it wasn't their devil. But I remember coming into season three, I was worried that they would just skip over that moment that was such a cute thing in season two. But then they come in and they do it so well. And there's so much to talk about because one of the things I like about it is that we saw Foggy in season one discovering Matt's identity. And, you know, we spent a whole episode with the reaction and everything. Then we have season two where we see... Electra figuring out, and I say kind of because she already knew that Matt was special because of Stick, but you have that interaction too, like how Matt um, reveals himself to Electra. And then you finally have season three 
and you see the the difference between how it was with Electra and how it was with Foggy, and it's just these are three really important people for Matt, and we see three very different facets of him revealing himself. One that wasn't voluntary uh, with Foggy, one that was um, an in between kind of thing with Electra, and finally we see with Karen Hing actually offering that information for the first time, and it's such a good thing to say. I don't know, I like seeing Matt growing and just owning his secret and trusting the people he actually cares about. And there's also the fact, like at the end, uh, we have Kyren actually rejecting Matt's advances. And I really like the part where, where she said, um, I don't think there that was the problem. I think it was Deborah who was talking about this in one podcast, that there's so much to read on that phrase. You could interpret this as Matt is the problem, not the devil himself. Or it could be Kyren is the problem because she's also lying to Matt at that point. She's also hiding a lot of stuff from Foggy and, and Matt. So there's just so much in this whole scene to love. So much that I was hoping to see coming from the finale of season two, and they really delivered. I had been waiting for that scene all during season two. I was just saying, oh my God, when is he going to tell her? And I remember looking at the last episode going, okay, we've got about two minutes left. Matt, you better freaking tell her. And I was so excited when that scene actually happened. And then to have it end. And then we don't see the reaction in season two. We don't see the reaction in the Defenders. I was the same way. I was so happy that we got that reaction in season three. And I agree with everything that Sam said. It made sense that it wasn't an immediate acceptance of all of it. It made sense that she had to go for a walk. She was like, okay, that's heavy. I have to go for a walk. Um, and yeah, considering this is the first time that Matt has voluntarily told someone who he is, it, it was a really heavy moment. And I think the two of them played it brilliantly. The two actors were brilliant in that scene. Yeah, I agree. And I also think it's, it's uh, for the most part, a really good scene. Uh, I do have some issues with it, though. And it's not just this scene. It's also, I think, the, the foggy reveal in season one that I find kind of frustrating. On the one hand, because he doesn't, he, he doesn't actually go far enough in explaining things. I mean, on the one hand, he's, he's like brutally honest. I mean, she asked like, so, uh, so you can see when he's like, no, not exactly. And blah, blah, blah. And of course, he has to confess that uh, when she asked, so uh, the cane sister prop and he says, yup, and everything, which is fine, because this is not the point where he should start be trying to apologize for anything or hedging or being like, oh, but there's all, you know, there's more to it. Uh, so I get that he needs to like not be making any, ex any excuses for himself. So I, I get that part of the scene. But it is kind of frustrating to me out of just sort of like how the show and the comic and everything kind of treats his blindness generally that he doesn't also add that it's not all an act. And it's the same kind of thing with Foggy. And I mean, this kind of remains an issue because so many people are like super confused about, you know, what Matt's in a world even looks like with the world on fire and everything. You've seen someone that went away and, and stuff. But there's I think there's a lot of confusion about what he does and doesn't sort of quote unquote see and how he actually experiences the world and everything. And I think just some kind of mention of like the part of his life that aren't fake would have been nice. I don't know how they, I mean, could have 
weave that in there. But since there are so many people out there who obviously need to hear it because they don't really see that part of it, um, I would have wished for more of that, just like a throwaway line, you know, not much. But aside from that, I think the scene is strong. And I do appreciate that they're not putting him in a position where he is trying to defend himself. There, there is a defense to be made, but that's probably not the time to make it. So, yeah, I can kind of see it both ways. It could have been as simple as him saying, if Foggy hadn't told me, I wouldn't know what color your hair is or your eyes or you yeah. know, something simple like yeah. that um, yeah. would have just gone a long way to, to explain it to the audience, I think. Even something like, yeah, the king's a prop, the Brill isn't, you know, or something like something. Like yeah. there's a, there was a bone here, just something small like that, because so many people don't get it. So, yeah, I can't look at a photograph. I can't look at a TV screen. You know, that those are like legitimate things. Yeah. But but anyway, I mean, that's, that's kind of always going to be a, something that I, um, you know, I kind of always want a little bit more of that. But um, as it turn out, I think it's it's a nice and honest scene. And I also like, uh, just as you were saying, that she doesn't immediately forgive him, but that she still needs time to think about this. And she's still, and, and Matt is trying to compartmentalize his life in ways that she doesn't really buy, you know, sort of like, no, it's not just a daredevil thing, or like, it's a Matt thing. <laughs> so I, I um, yeah, I really appreciated that. Uh, but speaking of um, uh, episode one, still, I know that you had something too, Christina, that you wanted to mention. Yeah. So if you don't know, I'm a classical singer and I sing a lot in churches. And something that really stuck out for me was in the first episode, Resurrection, the scene where Matt is putting together his vigilante outfit for the first time. He's putting a version of the black suit together. This came after Matt has very bitterly denounced God. He doesn't care what God wants. I bleed only for myself. He is very much telling anyone who will listen that he doesn't care what God wants. He is doing this because he wants to do it in him himself. The music that is playing in that scene is a setting of the Latin mass. So it's something that's been said and sung for thousands of years. And it's uh, the movement is the Benedictus and it's Benedictus qui veniti nomine domini. And that translates as blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And I absolutely loved because here is Matt saying, I don't care about God. I'm not doing this for God. I'm doing it for myself. And the choir is saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're contradicting him. And I, I thought that was such a fantastic moment. John Paisano must have gotten an increase in budget because in The Defenders and in season three, suddenly you hear a full orchestra, suddenly you hear a choir. And I thought this was the perfect way to bring a choir into it, to kind of make a commentary on what's going on in the scene and saying, Matt, you're not done. You might be angry, but you have to kind of take a good look at what you're doing. That is so interesting, especially as someone who doesn't, you know, never would have thought to listen to the Latin or could understand it or know what it was about. But it really shows what kind of a attention to detail they, you know, bring to this show. It's amazing. And speaking also of the music generally, I, I uh, just, yeah, it is wonderful. And I just loved how watching this season again now, I really paid extra attention to the music. And it's like, I, like you said, I don't know if it's an increase in budget or what it is, but it's just like extra, <laughs> extra everything this season. It's so good. Yeah. And then I have a moment from Blindsided, which is uh, episode four, 
which is, of course, a um, episode that gets talked about a lot because it's got that amazing prison fight scene in it. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the prison fight scene, however, I'm going to talk about, and this is a very, uh, <laughs> I know you, Christina, we were joking before we were recording about our various, um, the various ways in which we like to nerd out over the show. <laughs> and you have sort of the music element and I have this sort of always analyzing uh, the census and science side of it. That's, that's kind of my shtick. But I, um, there's a scene in Blindsided right before he comes back to his apartment for the first time. Uh, and he comes back, to, of course, to pick up a suit and, you know, grab the cab and then go to the prison. But there's a scene when he enters his apartment and he kind of just steps into it and just absorbs it and, you know, kind of closes his eyes, breathes in. Just he, He's just standing in this space. And it takes... Um, I didn't count the seconds this time around, but it takes quite a few seconds. I think it's up to almost 20 seconds or something more than that for him to notice all the stacks of mail on the coffee table. And I love that because it sounds maybe like such a silly little thing. But what it really illustrates and one thing that I think would be very true for him is that the priority of his senses are different. Like if he comes in there and there's like a sharp smell, he would notice it right away. Or if there's a sound that's off, he would notice it right away. And of course, if any one of us are coming into our living room and it looks exactly as we left it, except it's got stacks and stacks of mail on the coffee table, we would notice that right away. But that's not his, the priority of his senses would be different. That would not just stand out to him immediately. It takes him a while to notice that the mail is there. And I love that. And I don't know how much thought went into that, but I'm assuming some thought went into it when they were writing that scene. And that's the kind of thing I very much appreciate because I totally buy that he comes in there and he does notice eventually, but it's not the first thing that stands out to him. Other things would stand out to him more. And uh, it's just such a subtle way of showing that. So major kudos for me <laughs> for that scene. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone else had any kind of reaction to that or if it's uh, <laughs> just me being weird. I totally did. Um, my my reaction, it was a different reaction than yours. So it's kind of cool. My reaction when he walked in and he kind of closed his eyes and took everything in, my feeling was he was catching the sense of everyone who had been in that apartment. I am imagining he's breathing in Electra's scent. He's breathing in Karen's scent. He's breathing in Foggy's scent. And he's having a moment of, of coming back home and knowing he can't stay, but he's just giving himself a moment. And then there's the stack of mail, which he notices. I have so few problems with this season, but this one is a big one. Why on earth doesn't a blind man have electronic bill pay? The idea that I anyone <laughs> is sending Matt Murdock physical bills is ridiculous. And I, I guess they did it just so they could have Karen say, oh, I'm paying his bills now. But that just, it, ugh. Ever since the very first time I saw that scene, it takes me out for a second. I'm like, that is so ridiculous. I don't buy it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, he could be using a scanner for that, honestly, but it, I agree. Like now in this day and age where you uh, can get most of your bills electronically, it makes much more sense for him to get them that way. Um, and I, I like that there's always, there's also like a, like some stacks of some magazines and I'm guessing those are like the free ones that just sent to everybody because, I mean, that's a, that's a waste of paper right there. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so it doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah, the only reason for it to be there is so that, I mean, otherwise he'd have a big problem with any of his stuff being paid by anyone since uh, Karen would be able to get to it. So 
but yeah, I agree. He shouldn't be getting all that, not that amount uh, of bills by um, the old fashioned way. That's for sure. But I do like what also what you mentioned about um, what he he's kind of like soaking in the the sense of the of the room because I also got that feeling and there's a lot of different things I like about that scene and that's also one of them too where it's like it's a nice interesting mix of like nostalgia and also rejection of that nostalgia like he's in that moment and then he snaps out of it and gets to work it's a very interesting scene that you could like you know it can be read so many different ways and it's, it says something about Charlie Cox as an actor that he's able to elicit all of those reactions um, <laughs> in just such a simple quiet scene and the next scene we wanted to talk about, uh, I think, was one of Sam's scenes, which is from episode seven, Aftermath. What I love the most about this is his character growth. I just love how, how it pays off all the troubles, all the hardship that we saw Foggy carrying Math going through in season one, season two, and they grow on their own. We see in season one a Foggy that is very under the shadow of Matt Murdock and then he starts coming out of it in season two and finally we see him standing on his own in season three and you could say the same thing as uh, from Karen like you have a season one Karen that is going on about her own is also still growing I don't know still very shy still very getting used to being a force to reckon and she grows into season two and season three, she's this reporter and everything. And a lot of the season three is them just being awesome and showing up all their growth. And the next episode two, Upstairs, Downstairs, that's episode seven and eight, are some of my favorite because they show all of this. They show Matt Murdock reacting and like we see him just being so full of kill that he drove everybody into this dangerous situation and he trusted that he could protect them and everything. He tells Maggie like, oh yeah, no, I fail. I, fail. I shouldn't have listened to you. And he's so full of it. Then you have Karen also just going through all the people that are now dead and all like the cell phones when she's staring at the bulletin and just feeling that way that, oh, she also played a part on minds of these people. And you see, fuck, he just being kind of out of it. Um, and I love that Foggy is actually the first one to get a hold of himself because it, it speaks to like of his growth. He has come to be the, the calming force. He's the one that kind of reigns him both Karen and Man. Uh, but I love the reactions of them in this episode just because it shows their growth and it shows how different they are from each other despite everything. But yeah, I love that dynamic here and how they have grown, how they show that. I think Foggy in particular has a very strong arc this whole season where he's yes. really, really coming into his own. And as you said, he's got this sort of calming influence on the people around him, including Karen. And I mean, of course, this season, Karen has a lot of different things to deal with. And and he gets to kind of be a big brother kind of character to her when she needs it, too. And also the calming one and the one who's even though he's been hurt by Matt, is quick to forgive him which I think is um, is interesting because, of course, he must have been hurt very, very badly when Matt shows up and then doesn't want to see him again. But it's like he decides to be the bigger the bigger person and sort of like the stable kind of guy. So, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's kind of it's interesting to see them this season. And I know you mentioned also uh, the episode eight upstairs, downstairs where Karen is kind of out of it and Foggy comes with it to her with a plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you see, like, Foggy's finally the one that is not being left behind because this happens a lot in season two where he's just, like, on the sideline and not really knowing what's going on. 
but now he's the one that's trying to do things and driving. And he's a, he's the one like, coming to Karen with a plan, which is so different from when Karen was like with the Punisher, where she's like, we have to do something. And Foggy's the one like, oh, I don't know, Karen. And now he's the one like, oh, I have a plan. And Karen's like, oh, I don't know, Foggy. So <laughs> it shows a lot of his growth. The same with the police when he's just he freezes while he's talking and he realizes what Karen is doing and he the, the eventually tells her like please don't turn uh, like mad on me because he has seen this with Matt before and now he he like Karen Matt has some parallel in how they behave in some in some situations and stuff and now Foggy has been trained to read those and he's like he knows when they're going about to do something really stupid and he's learning how to curve them to do the right thing or you know just be a little bit more conscious of their own self yeah yeah it's interesting all the parallels between Karen and Matt I think that uh, part of the reason that Foggy's arc is so strong in this season is because he actually has a serious relationship with Marcy and I think part of his confidence and the way that he can come up with the plan is because Marcy has his back, which I really like. And talking about the reactions from the bulletin, the Karen and Ellison scene in the hospital is dynamite. I think Jeff Cantor and Deborah Ann Wall are both brilliant in that scene. And it's great to see their reactions to what just happened. Their place of employment is now the site of a massacre. And Karen is holding so much guilt about it and feels so upset about it. Yet she's still not going to give up Daredevil's identity. That thing is brilliant. It's really strong. I remember feeling really bad for Karen because she's trying to do the right thing at the end of the day. But she was like, oh, no, I can't give it. And she loses much what is her main support at this point, which is Alison. He was the guy that she was going to for support when Foggy is doing things with Marcy and Matt is being mad. So just seeing her lose everything and that it was painful. I think this season, honestly, just like, I mean, talking about uh, Deborah Ann Wool is, is uh, I have liked her fine throughout all the seasons of Daredevil. I found her to be like, it was a good casting choice. Uh, she's been great in the role, but this season is where she step, she takes it up a notch. So for me, this was the first season where I felt like, wow, she's, she's a really good actress, which kind of, you know, is a nice segue to the scene I know that you wanted to talk about, um, Christina. Yes. Okay. So one of the scenes that stuck out to me was Wilson Fisk versus Karen Page in Upstairs, Downstairs. It's uh, the confrontation we did not know that we needed, but we did. And the joy of having the luxury of time to rewatch this show is it took me a couple of viewings to realize what was going on as far as the camera angles and the camera work in this scene. And it totally is used to heighten the tension. And what happens is, let's say for part of this conversation, Karen is talking to Fisk and Karen is dominating the conversation. She is in control. She is confident. She has him on edge. Then they will cut to looking at Wilson Fisk over one of Karen's shoulders. The camera will then pan across her back. And then we're looking at Wilson Fisk over her other shoulder. And at that point, 
Wilson Fisk is in charge of the conversation. He is the dominant force. He is in control. He is making her uncomfortable. And then they'll switch again. Then you'll see Karen over one of Wilson Fisk's shoulders. The camera will pan across his back. Now we're looking at Karen over his other shoulder. And once again, she is in charge of the conversation. And that happens several times. And it's kind of brilliant to watch. Um, I know some people don't like to necessarily see how filmmakers do what they do, but I love that stuff. So I was so happy when I realized that's what they were doing in order to show the shift of dynamics in that conversation. Yeah, I love that you're paying attention to that kind of thing, because I wouldn't, but I love hearing about it. <laughs> so it makes you kind of look at it in, in new ways. But I mean, there's just so much tension in that scene. And I guess the camera work kind of, even for those of us who don't notice it, it probably subconsciously does something to us to heighten the scene, but we don't know why. <laughs> so I totally love that stuff. But I mean, that was such a strong, super, super intense scene. That thing is just really hanging, especially like from both of the actors. Um, there's so much expression and like they tell so very little. And, that, and that's part of the camera work too, because they also do like a lot of zoom in and zoom out just in the right moments where they are like picking at the subtle um, expressions in Fizz and Karen's faces. Then it's just so good. That scene is so, so, so good. Yeah, it also kind of gives us a nice way to sort of tie into the comics. Of course, in the comics, uh, Fisk finds out uh, Matt slash Daredevil's real identity by Karen Page telling him, like she sells him the secret for it for a fix uh, <laughs> in the comics. And she doesn't do anything like that here, but it's still in this conversation with Karen that she confirms his already very strong suspicion, of course, that Matt and Daredevil are one, one and the same. So it kind of nicely parallels the comics, but in a very different way still kind of her and she still gets to feel the guilt about it so i thought that was uh, kind of a nice uh, uh nice way to do it and uh, i think that the next uh scene on our little discussion list was one of mine uh, from episode nine revelations and it's one with uh well none of our you know top trio of characters uh it's uh one with ray nadim who's of course a newcomer this season and has his own arc and uh, a really, really strong one too. I really loved everything that he brought uh, to the table. But the one scene I wanted to talk about is where he decides to come clean about what he knows already uh, about what's going on. Like he's gradually come to understand that there's something really fishy going on uh, with Fisk and that Fisk is indeed pulling the strings of the FBI and everything. So he uh, schedules an appointment with his boss, Tammy Hatley. Um, and the guy who is from, I think he's, he's from the sort of the FBI version of internal affairs. I can't remember the exact name of the department, but anyway, this, uh, agent Wynn, who I think was also in one of the earlier episodes when he's talking to, um, to and about, uh, Dex. Uh, but anyway, so he's set up, they've set up to meet at her house, which is undergoing renovation, which of course turns out to be quite convenient for her. Um, cause there's like plastic everywhere and <laughs> stuff to like protect all the furniture from, from, um, construction. And he starts sort of coming clean. It's on tape and everything. And of course you can tell that, that his boss, uh, agent Hatley is getting like, she, there's a tension there and she's getting kind of more and more, uh, frustrated by this and how she on tape takes Nadim's gun and shoots agent Wynn and then makes a recording 
like she she says out loud so that it'll seem like it was it was Agent Nadim who did it. And then she shuts the recorder off. And that to me was when I first saw this show, and I mean it's a lot of like twists and everything, and there are other shocking moments. But this was one of the most genuinely shocking moments I think I almost like that I've seen on TV. Because it's it's kind of like uh I mean, we know that the FBI is kind of I mean, there's a lot of corruption in the FBI. We know that at this point. But there's really nothing thus far to indicate where Hathley is leaning. Like if you rewatch the show after knowing this, you'll notice it. But it's so cleverly done that you don't really think about it the first time around. And you do think she's one of the good guys. And how she's also in on it and how she at the same time is terrified. She does this out of like complete fear and almost kind of with a, with a sense of having lost all hope that her life is not her own anymore. When she tells him... I'm not your boss. Uh, Fisk is your boss. And the way this scene was laid out, it was like the drama of it. It was just super shocking. And still, when I rewatch it, it is such a chilling scene. And for me, it also shows the kind of like the level of ambition for this show. It's really like I, I just thought it was masterful. Yeah. You know, this season is full of these moments where every time you think, OK, OK, the good guys have a way. They have a way. They just knock it down. And this is one of the first ones. Uh, for me, there's a couple of reasons why I think this scene is so great. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a while since I did my last rewatch, but I'm pretty sure that when the first shot rings out, we're looking at Ray's face. We are not looking at Hatley and we're not looking at Agent Wynn. And I think that's part of what is so shocking is we're, we're looking at Ray's face and then you hear the shot. And so it's what happened because we don't get to see it happen. Um, the other thing that gets me every time is as soon as she's done, she says, damn it, Ray, you bring this into my house, my home. That's what's important to her at that moment is how dare you make me do this in my own house? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's so many layers to it. I mean, I really like that scene, especially because the whole FBI raid and Fizz Finn is done very, very well, and it was one of the highlights of the season for me. Because at this point, I'm not so sure of what's the whole deal with Fisk. Like, I remember knowing, like, okay, it is Fisk. He, he must be doing something that we are not seeing. But one thing is knowing, like, having that, that suspicion and, like, trying to find it. And another one is, like, seeing it play, like, it happened here. Like, that's the moment where I was like, holy shit, this goes deep. Fisk has everything. And it just pays off so well. It took me by surprise, even if I knew that what Fizz was capable of. But I was part of me was like, no, maybe he's not that deep, you know, maybe it's not that bad. Yeah, it's really sort of like he glimpses that there's something behind the curtain and then the curtain just falls down in one fell swoop. It's just like, yeah, it, it, it's sort of the scale of everything just, you know, went from like 10 to 100 and... Nadim knows that and it's such a big turning point in his character arc too because it's like it's the beginning of the end in a lot of ways um I I just I just love it but uh I think next on our list is uh, one of Christina's moments that you wanted to mention from episode 10 Karen yeah and I've talked about this in other podcasts so please forgive me repeating myself but I can't say it enough the final shot of the episode entitled Karen it gave me goosebumps the first time I saw it, and I still get affected every time I see it. And uh, this whole episode really leans into some of the things we saw from the comics, 
but they only use the comics as inspiration. They definitely did not use it as a Bible. In the comics, we find out that Karen was a drug addict. And they definitely allude to this. But in the show, of course, they decide that she was a drug addict in the past when she was younger, before she showed up in New York and met Matt and Foggy. Another thing that happens in a comics run called Guardian Devil is that Bullseye kills Karen Page in a church. And so clearly when Bullseye showed up in the church and he wants to kill Karen, I think anyone who has read that comic run was extremely nervous thinking they might do it. They just might do it. I mean, think about the fact that they killed Ben Urich in season one. They might do it. And of course they didn't. And what they did with the final shot is it's a beautiful shot of Karen cradling Matt, who is badly injured at the foot of a crucifix bathed in red light. And that is a reference to a panel in Guardian Devil in which Matt is cradling Karen's dead body at the base of a crucifix. And it's such a beautiful reference without following the comics like a Bible. And that's what this show does so well. And it was this is just like, for me, it was the perfect example of them doing that. Oh, yeah, I 100% agree. And it, it, I mean, and everyone who's read the comics will know exactly what this is referring to. Uh, and as you said, at the same time, it's like it's, it's borrowing inspiration, but it's subverting our expectations at every turn. You know, so you keep even longtime uh, comic book readers guessing the whole time, uh, which is, of course, exactly what you want. You want to kind of embody, you want the spirit of this character, these characters um, and the comics to be kind of translated into what's happening in the show. But never copy anyone's story, just be inspired by it. And I think this is such a perfect example of that. And it's also just a beautiful shot. If you've never read any single comic, you'll still look at that shot and say, that's a beautiful shot. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't read Guardian Sebel by the time I watched this episode, but then I went on and like read the comic and I recognized the scene. Of course, it was like delayed effect, like, oh, this is what they did. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and that was really nice to see too, for people that haven't like read the comics after they go and watch the show. If they go read the comics, they are going to find a lot of scenes like this. And it's going to be just really satisfying to see where they are coming from. Yeah, I remember um, Eric Olson, uh, who was a showrunner for season three, was a bit disappointed that they actually put a glimpse of this in one of the trailers because he, he built this episode up to be that everyone was going to think, oh, it's a send-off episode. Now, we, leave, you know, we learn Kara's backstory before she dies. <laughs> um, and also the thing where, like, the scene where where Father Lantum actually gets, when he gets that the uh, billy club thrown through his chest, the, the same way it happens with Karen in the comics. And you see it, it's like the, the camera is on Karen, and you hear the sound of this going into human flesh, which is not a very nice sound. And you think Karen, and then the, the you know, the camera shows that it's Father Lantum. So I can understand if he was a bit bummed that people knew already that in this, like this scene was in the trailer. So on the other hand, I, I did find that somewhat comforting because I was kind of hoping that they wouldn't kill her. So, <laughs> But um, yeah, it's a great scene, great episode uh, too. Uh, my final one, and I guess uh, our final one uh, is from the final episode, A New Napkin. Uh, and there's so, again, so many great, things in this episode it really there's a it, this episode does a lot like, there's a lot of plot advancement happening without it necessarily feeling like it's rushed at the end like i said or like we said er earlier it's it's a perfectly paced season of a television show 
So there's a lot happening in the in the final um, episode without it feeling rushed. But uh, I do love the end of it. Um, I mean, of course, we have the whole th- thing with uh, you know Matt um, punching on the kingpin, but not killing him. Like that's a big part of him coming to terms with who he is, and more importantly, who he isn't that he's not a killer and that everything that he thought about himself, maybe up until that point, was like him lying to himself. And he's now ready to kind of look at himself more clearly. And one scene I love is the one where he's talking to, to sister Maggie and uh, she's carefully approaching him because they haven't really talked much since he found out that she's his mother. Um, And he's standing, you know, under this sort of, um, this beautiful church window and and he starts talking about sort of like the meaning of it all and and uh how he felt after um he was blinded and everything and and um how father landman tried to talk to him and he says this this bit about how um god can see the tapestry from the proper side of it where you see the pattern you see everything whereas those of us sort of uh, more ordinary people down on earth only get to see the muddy colors and the threads on the backside of the tapestry, which, I mean, it's, it's interesting that he uses such an extremely visual metaphor, but it's still, of course, he knows what a tapestry looks like back for, you know, on the front and back. But it's an interesting sort of uh, him kind of taking in the notion that he doesn't understand the bigger plan and he's kind of okay with that. Like he feels that maybe everything that's happened in his life, that has been the plan all along, but he also it seems to be more at peace with not understanding everything. And I think also everything that kind of happens after that, there's also, he gives this really beautiful speech at Father Lantham's funeral and he talks with Karen and he, he kind of come, comes back around and he grows into this sort of better version of himself at the end. And this whole package, like at the end of this um, episode, it took us a long time to get there for Matt. Like he had to wade through so much emotional stuff to get there but he he eventually does and he just sort of gives up some of the power he thinks he has uh, of everything yeah that did it for me talking about that final episode of course we get to hear him say a man without fear and I made a whooping sound and punched the air. And my husband very dryly said, I guess that's something from the comics. And we had to pause and rewind and watch it again because I was making so much noise. It was pretty funny. Um, But yeah, that was that was a great little moment in there, too. Sam, do you have any closing thoughts? I do. I do want to mention one last thing because we didn't give him much of a spotlight today. And it's Dex. Because Dex, um, Bullseye in general, is just one of the highlights of this season. He was great, the actor was great, the character was great. I think one of the best um, iterations that character that we have had so far in Marvel history. But I wanted to highlight especially the items in at the bulletin, Matt versus Bullseye in the Daredevil suit. Because that scene is great at highlighting just how scary Dex is. Basically, everything he crafts becomes a weapon. He's just so good at it. And he's scary because he's just this guy that can throw stuff. And you think, oh, like, well, that's not, it's, it's a very simple power to say, way to attack and stuff. But he makes it scary the way he grabs the pants and the way he grabs everything and just blunders mad with it. It really drives home just how crazy this guy is. 
It's another example to me of both stunt work and music telling a story, because in that sequence, you can see the difference between when the battle is close in and when there is distance between them. And when the battle is close in and it's hand to hand and they're very close, Matt clearly has the upper hand and the music that is playing is the daredevil theme. When there's distance between them, that's when Dex starts getting the upper hand and he starts throwing everything in that office at Matt and the music changes and it's Dex's theme. And again, that is something the first time around, there's no way you're going to catch that. I don't think anyone is expected to catch that. It's supposed to be on a subliminal level. It kind of colors the sequence, but it's so cool. Oh, I love that. I, I've never see now I'm gonna have to like rewatch it again, just uh, you know, pay so much more attention to the music and everything and and the camera work. Uh that's amazing that you caught that. I think that's that's so cool. I know that's not everyone loved this iteration of Bullseye, but I think he's he's perfect. Um there's a certain aspect of it where he where he's also a victim, but he's also sort of like the perfect victim for Fisk to to utilize in the situation. And because he unravels so easily and he packs such a punch. He's such a, a powder keg of a character and he's capable of such violence and such skilled violence too. Uh, and just as Sam said, like the, the way he turns everything into a weapon, which is also something that it's one of those abilities that you're not sure is going to translate all that well from comics to like, you know, live action. But it really does here. It's like the the scene in the bulletin where they're fighting, it's almost like, you know, dramatic and awful as that scene is in terms of like the, you know, people are dying around them. There's still like a weird kind of dark humor to the way he throws all those like, you know, the, there's like office supplies being yes. thrown every, everywhere. And it, so it's got like sort of, you know, comic book humor to it at the same time yes. that that doesn't undercut the seriousness of the situation. So it's an interesting combination, really. So I think that uh, we have talked about all of the special moments we wanted to talk about uh, for this episode. Hey, you know what I was thinking? I was just thinking uh, we've had so much fun doing this for season one, season two, the Defenders in season three. I sure would love to be able to do this for a season four, maybe even a season five or a season six. So uh, just putting it out there that that would be absolutely wonderful. Big part of why we're here. Please. Maybe the biggest yes. part. <laughs> yeah, so and to anyone listening, you know, with any kind of power, uh, hear our plea. So yeah, it would, be, uh, it would be lovely to be able to continue this. And I think also where this episode or where this season ends is a perfect a jumping on spot for anything, any coming seasons or other kind of ventures uh, that lies ahead, hopefully, for this character. So I think it's uh, it's perfect for that. And we would love to see more. And there's so much more to be told. And I think especially now that Matt's gone through his whole journey of, of healing, in a way, and maybe growing into a more mature version of himself. And I think it would just be so wonderful to see what that would mean for him. So um, thank you guys for talking about uh, Daredevil Season 3. And uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And I hope you guys did too. And uh, of course, we want to remind all of our listeners to uh, of course, comment on this episode and uh, let us know what else you want us to talk about. And remember to follow us on our many different social media channels. We are uh, at Renew Daredevil on Twitter. We are 
at Save Daredevil, pretty much everywhere else on um, uh, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Also do, if you haven't checked out our, our YouTube channel, uh, please do. Don't forget to subscribe. This was so much fun. So great talking about this. And please tell us what your favorite moments were from season three in the comments. So um, that's it for now. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Talk Daredevil, the official podcast of the Save Daredevil campaign. For more information on Save Daredevil, please visit our website at savedaredevil.com. Remember, Murdoch's always get back up. 